Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The numbers are in for the third Republican presidential debate. Uh, not exactly a big hit at the box office. I'm not faulting NBC. I thought it was a good debate. But the debate numbers have been going down. So grand total, and this is on a broadcast network, 6.8 million viewers. The first debate, the one that was hosted by Fox News, 12.8 million viewers. So it's just been going down and down. And the problem is, I think, there's no Trump. And, you know, when Trump first said he was going to skip the first debate and then probably the others, and obviously he has no inclination to join now, you know, a lot of the pundits said, well, you know, the Republican voters are going to be insulted by this. And, you know, he's been giving the stage to his rivals to take shots at him. Well, first of all, they didn't hardly take any shots at him, as we discussed on this podcast. But secondly, he's depressed the viewership. Because people know that he's way ahead And while, you know, as somebody does this for a living, I find it interesting to see uh, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy go at it or uh, Ron DeSantis, etc. But let's just say the uh, if it was a, a TV series, it might be in danger of being canceled. Hey, it's Friday. I just met with my staff figuring out how in the world we're going to fit everything we need to do including some new developments uh, into Sunday's media buzz. Hope you'll catch the show, uh, 11 Eastern on Fox. And um, the thing about Donald Trump's, I guess we were just sort of indirectly talking about him, is when something, when he says something that a lot of people think are is outrageous, or there are news reports, media scoops about, well, what Trump's going to just go haywire in the second term. The instinct of the average politician, and nobody would call Donald Trump average whether you like him or not, would be to tamp it down to say, oh, no, no, that was misinterpreted. Well, what we really uh, plan to do is X. He don't do that. (laughs) He gave an interview to uh, Univision. And the anchor asked, if you win a second term, are you going to weaponize the FBI, and the Justice Department against your opponents the same way that you say it's happened to you. Here's what the former president said. Yeah, if they do this, and they've already done it, but if they follow through on this, yeah, it certainly could happen in reverse. What they've done is they've released a genie out of the box. You know, when you're president and you've done a good job and you're popular, you don't go after them so you can win an election. Then, coming back to talking about the Democrats, they have done something that allows the next party, if I happen to be president, 
and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. They'd be out of business. They'd be out of the election. Well, of course, Trump's suggestion is that Joe Biden said go down and indict them. Remember, two out of the four criminal cases are at the state level, New York and Georgia. Anyway, I just find it fascinating that um, in most instances, Trump doubles down. You know, in that sense, he's kind of transparent. He doesn't, you know, I mean, sure, he spins everything like anybody in public life. But I just, there's just something about these quotes. He says, if they do this, well, they've already done it. Yeah, he's, um, you know, well, he's got the New York civil fraud trial, which, by the way, I said the other day was nearing its end. I was wrong. It was, it's just the prosecution part. Um, beginning next week, the defense gets to um, have its turn. They're going to call some of the same witnesses, like Don Jr. as the leadoff witness, next Monday, I believe. And the trial is expected to wrap up in the middle of next month. Right, story number one. When I first saw story number one, that Joe Manchin will not be running for re-election as a senator from West Virginia. My reaction, first reaction, just, you know, boom, was, well, I bet Joe Biden's happy about that because Manchin has been such a thorn in his side, you know, being probably the most conservative Democrat on Capitol Hill, certainly in the Senate, and, you know, it was Manchin who blocked a lot of the big spending programs that Biden wanted to do, although they eventually did work out a compromise. But then about, oh, I don't know, two seconds later, I, you know, kind of slapped my forehead and said, no, this is terrible news for the Democrats because they're going to lose the seat. Remember, the lineup in the Senate, 51 Democrats, 49 Republicans. So um, here's Politico's take. Um you know, if you're not that familiar with his career, he won his seat in 2010 and hung on since then, thanks to a moderate brand that has given him one of the party's most conservative records. Here's the thing. Joe Manchin realized there was a very, very good chance that he was going to lose. He was going to, he's a former governor. He was going to face the current West Virginia governor, Republican Jim Justice, and the numbers show that that's a tough race for him. So here's a statement. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided I will not be running for re-election. Now, this might be even worse news for Biden than losing a seat in the Senate in 2024. The question is, would Manchin, who I've always sort of liked because he's a regular guy and he, you know, he's one of these guys who says, you know, we know we can't go too far in the conservative direction, we can't go too far in the liberal direction, whether he would run for president as a third party candidate. We already have RFK Jr. you know, putting up some striking numbers, although I 
would be willing to bet a fair amount of money if I were a betting man. Because you can go broke doing this. <laughs> um, that his numbers will go down to single digits. But if Manchin were to run, I mean, there's just simply no question whether, whether he would be affiliated with the no labels group or not. Mostly, he would take votes from President Biden. And in a tight race, that could be the difference. So Manchin says, oh, I'll be traveling the country and speaking out, trying to create a movement. Um, I mean, he's been very tough on Biden on climate change, health uh, care, not raising taxes too much. Well, Politico just comes out and says it. Senate Republicans are almost certain to capture West Virginia in light of Manchin's retirement. There's almost no Democrat in the conservative state with a shot at winning. So there you have it. And even before this news, the Republicans are thought to have the edge to win back the Senate. I mean, if the Republicans take the White House, they need only one seat and they get the 50-50 split that the Dems originally had in Biden's first two years. But if they win one more seat, then they don't need a vice president to cast tie-breaking votes. And it's interesting. Mitt Romney, retiring. Kirsten Cinema in Arizona hasn't announced yet, but she left the Democratic Party and now is an independent, so she'd be facing a three-way race. It's sort of these people who are whether you want to call them moderates or people in the center, they're bailing. They're bailing, I think, because they're frustrated. <laughs> so when Joe Manchin first ran for the Senate, there was an ad, I remember seeing this, um, showed him shooting live ammunition at a climate bill. <laughs> um, Manchin voted twice to convict Donald Trump in the impeachment trials. So his fingerprints are kind of all over the Biden agenda. Now, maybe it wouldn't have mattered if he was almost certain to lose to Jim Justice. Then the Republicans are going to get that seat. What does matter, I mean, now you have RFK. If Manchin were to do this, and you also have Cornell West, I mean, there'd be so many names on the ballot, and then you get into this sort of guessing game about who hurts who the worst. I don't think that was grammatical, but I think you get my meaning. Who, whom, let me work on that for a while. Who is the most dangerous, destructive, threatening to the two major party candidates? And look, everybody knows public sentiment is uh, Trump and Biden again. You know, a guy who's about to be 81 and a guy who's 77. But here's my prediction. Could be wrong. Manchin will flirt with running for president. He'll make noises about running for president. He'll do a lot of TV interviews. And in the end, he won't do it because I don't think he wants to be responsible for handing the election to Donald Trump. But he probably will want something in exchange for not doing it. I don't know what that could be. All right, number two. So there's a new court filing. It always seems to be coming back to Trump. 
There's a new court filing from Jack Smith. He, of course, the special counsel in the investigation of Trump. He's got two cases in which he has brought indictments. One is the uh, classified documents case, and the other one is, you know, the shorthand is the January 6th case. Well, that's the one we're going to talk about right now. So Trump made a motion, his lawyers did, um, to bar federal prosecutors from mentioning the violence that happened on January 6, 2021. But Jack Smith, oh, he has a different view. New court filing shows that the mob that stormed the Capitol, a bunch of pro-Trump supporters, obviously, and the unfortunate and tragic violence that took place there, that will be the centerpiece of the trial, which is scheduled for March 4th. Suddenly doesn't seem that far away. So the Jack Smith case, as revealed in his filing, is whatever Trump said that day, and I know he also said, let's be peaceful, to fire up that mob when they marched down Pennsylvania Avenue and then breached the barricades. This was a tool for Donald Trump to try to cling to power. Trump's criminal conspiracies, quote, culminated and converged on January 6th, according to this filing by uh, somebody on Jack Smith's team. One of the ways that the defendant did so was to direct an angry crowd of his supporters to the Capitol and to continue to stoke their anger while they were rioting. This is the court filing. So you have, obviously, two very different narratives. Trump continues to say the election was stolen, it was rigged, there was election fraud, widespread election fraud. Never been proven in any of the lawsuits he brought or were brought on his behalf. Never been proven in all the media investigations, but Trump basically says he was dropped. The other narrative is, the one largely adopted by the mainstream media, is that Trump is responsible for what happened on January 6th. He said, come to D.C., going to be wild. And sat in the uh, White House watching on TV while the rioting was taking place, and not until fairly late in the afternoon did he ask his people to go home. We love you. And he also argues now that the people who were convicted— of various crimes, some of them very serious crimes, for January 6th, um, have been wrongly prosecuted, or they're hostages, or they're political prisoners. I don't know. They had their trials in different courts with different judges. This is the part of the Trump uh, offensive that I least understand and why that would be popular. People who, you know, were hunting down Nancy Pelosi, people who were chanting, hang Mike Pence. So, it was unclear until now whether Jack Smith was going to go down this road. Maybe he would try to do a narrower um, legal case against Trump. But no, he's now had to show his hand. 
The defendant here is charged with four related criminal counts, including conspiring to obstruct and obstructing the official certification procedure on January 6th. Essential to those charges are factual allegations and evidence that the proceeding was in fact impeded, namely by a large crowd, including individuals whom the defendant had directed at the Capitol, that violently advanced to the Capitol building to create a catastrophic security risk. So there's no subtle language here. This is what the case will be fought out on. And this was the focus of the January 6th committee as well. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Okay, so here's a related piece that you might enjoy. Column by Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, says it's almost unfathomable that we're facing a former president with four criminal trials ahead of him. Democrats figure or hope, says Lowry, that the conviction or two will finish Trump off and make up for Joe Biden's vulnerabilities. But the politics aren't that clear. Much of the public is already taking the indictments with a grain of salt. It's not obvious, says Rich, that the courtroom action will loom larger for voters than the traditional presidential issues, the economy, foreign affairs. The walls could finally close in on Trump in the form of a felony conviction. And he could still win the presidency next year. I'm not as convinced of that as Lowry is. That New York Times poll that showed Trump uh, ahead of Biden in five crucial swing states also said that about 6% telling pollsters they would abandon the former president if he was convicted. So it's hard to predict. But even the fact that, that, you know, as experienced a commentator as Rich Lowry could suggest this is fascinating. Um, So the coverage, for example, of the civil fraud case going on now, it's all about how badly it's gone for Trump 
and uh, he's sanctioned by the judge. He stormed out of the courtroom and on and on. There's no doubt he's going to lose. I mean, the judge has already convicted him of fraud, and this trial is about the penalty. But Trump is fighting on another dimension. Would that be an alternate universe? Um, His courtroom behavior is meant to underline this is not a typical legal proceeding. And then, you know, the piece goes into Letitia James, the New York AG, running against him when she won the office, calling him a con man, illegitimate president, and so forth. But here's actually, I think, the most telling sentence. It's quite possible that a conviction will be shocking, shocking, in the immediate aftermath and then absorbed into the endless news cycle like everything else. In other words, access Hollywood once again. Perhaps people care more about the January 6th case than some of these other cases. But it may be that it all becomes an undistinguished blur with appeals layered on top if Trump is found guilty. So, you know, just like every time since 2016, there has been this sort of almost salivation in the media and among many Democrats. Well, this time Trump is through. Well, wait till Bob Mueller gets through with him. Well, what, what do we find out about that he was uh, conspiring with Russia? And what about this? And what about that? A president of the United States convicted of a felony? And there's, you know, there's also the question of would he be sentenced to jail time? And a majority of voters shrug it off? Just fascinating Uh, hypothetical and maybe not so hypothetical. All right, number three, uh, finally under pressure from the Biden administration, Israel has agreed to four-hour pauses in operations inside Gaza, allow time for more civilians to flee the northern part of the territory. I don't know where they're supposed to end up sleeping. And to make it easier to, to... get humanitarian aid in from that border with Egypt. So initially it seemed like Netanyahu said no way. Now it seems like, you know, he's certainly not agreeing to a ceasefire, and this doesn't even resemble a ceasefire. A four-hour pause. We'll see how that works. Um, The Israeli Defense Forces didn't mention this. This was put out by the White House. Um, the Israeli prime minister's office says Israel would allow a window for evacuation of civilians, but only in certain places. So in other words, they could keep fighting Hamas as long as it wasn't in this so-called safe zone. President Biden saying yesterday that he had, in fact, asked Bibi, uh, for a three-day pause to allow for the possible release of 239 hostages. I don't know that there would be any hostage release. We've been hearing about this for weeks and weeks. Now, that brings me to a story that is Uh, turning into a a very big story, an important story. It's about journalists 
in Gaza. I actually came into the Washington Bureau yesterday to do this, but it ended up getting squeezed out by breaking news. So I will share it with you. And I've talked a little bit about this, but, you know, basically, journalists in Gaza have, have long been suspected of collaborating with Hamas. Now, that could be because they sympathize with the terrorist group, or it could be because they fear the consequences if they don't. They may not have a choice. It may be you collaborate with us or, you know, we push you off a building. But now we have this case involving a freelancer in Gaza whose name is Hassan Ezlaya. And he has been working for CNN, and he's also done a lot of work for the Associated Press, although the AP now says it hasn't, you know, that he's not working with the wire service now. So a photo emerged, a devastating photo, of this guy, Ezlaya, getting a kiss on the cheek from a top Hamas leader. And there are other questions about his conduct. So he was among the Gaza photographers who shot pictures of the brutal Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. And now CNN says, while we have not at this time found reason to doubt the journalistic accuracy of the work he has done for us, we have decided to suspend all ties with him. Yeah, I would think being kissed by the leader of Hamas, not something you'd want to put on your resume if you're working with a major Western news organization. Now, there's also this pro-Israel group called Honest Reporting. And it is raising questions about whether some of these Gaza photographers who were there on October 7th were tipped off in advance about this attack. I don't think Hamas would take that risk with people who are working with, you know, outlets, the nature of the C- of CNN, the New York Times, AP, Reuters, and, and all of these organizations are absolutely denying that their people knew anything in advance or that they knew anything in advance. New York Times calling the allegation untrue and outrageous and reckless, putting its journalists in Israel and Gaza at risk. Reuters says it got the pictures of the attacks two hours after it started. So you wouldn't need to be, um, have any advanced knowledge. So now, Bibi Netanyahu's office, picking up on these allegations, and I'm trying to make a, a sharp distinction here between what's proven and not proven. These journalists were accomplices in crimes against humanity. Their actions were contrary to professional ethics We demand that action be taken, and the Israeli opposition leader, who's part of the cabinet now, the same way the international media is always asking for a response from us, we are now demanding a response from them, writes on Twitter. Who are these journalists? Were they involved in the attack? Did they know in advance? Are you going to fire them? And as long as we're on the subject, more than 100 journalists yesterday occupying the lobby of the New York Times to protest the editorial board's opposition to a ceasefire in Gaza. So they were there for over an hour, reading off the names of thousands of Palestinians killed in Gaza, including at least 36 journalists whose deaths 
have been confirmed. So they handed out copies of something called the New York Crimes, accusing the newspaper of complicity in laundering genocide. Read out the names of members of the editorial board. So in this statement, this group says that the Times has been minimizing and outright erasing the critical context of 75 years of Israel apartheid and land theft. Let me just stop on the land theft. 1967, major Arab countries attacked Israel. As a result of that war, Israel wound up controlling the territory that is now the West, or commonly called the West Bank, and Gaza, and some of the uh, Golan Heights. So you can call it land theft if you want, but Israel didn't start that war in 67 or 73 or this past October 7th. There is blood on the hands of the New York Times editorial board. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with peaceful protest, although taking over the lobby of a building is a little bit different. But these people, describing themselves as journalists, feel passionate. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, number four. Um, Profile piece in the Atlantic of Peter Thiel who's a zillionaire, and I'll explain a little bit more about him, written by my old colleague, uh, investigative reporter Bart Gelman. And he had a series of interviews with Teal, who famously doesn't speak to the media. Um, Gelman writes, he wanted me to publish a promise he was going to make so he wouldn't be tempted to go back on his word. What was that? Not giving money to any politician, including Donald Trump, in this presidential campaign. So... Trump got angry at him some time ago, even though he had originally given him a lot of money. Thiel tried to duck Trump's calls for a while, but in late April, former president got him on the phone, reminded Thiel that he had backed two of Thiel's protégés, Senate candidates Blake Masters and J.D. Vance. Thiel had given each of them more than $10 million. Trump now wanted Thiel, Peter Thiel, to give the same amount of money to him. And when he said no, Trump told me he was very sad, very sad to hear that. He expected more of me, way more of me. So word got back to Teal that Trump had called Masters to discourage him from running for the Senate again and had called Teal an effing scumbag. Teal's hope was that this article would lock me into not giving any money to Republican politicians in 2024. It's always a chance I might change my mind. But by talking to you, Uh, For the Atlantic, it makes it hard for me to change my mind. My husband doesn't want me to give them any more money, and he's right. I know they're going to be pestering me like crazy. So Peter Thiel is the guy, this may ring a bell, back in 2016, who secretly funded a lawsuit, a $115 million lawsuit, won by Hulk Hogan, 
the professional wrestler, against Gawker and basically drove Gawker out of business. So this was a guy who can use his money, knows how to use his money, um, to have quite an impact. Um, he went on to say that, wow, I thought maybe now Trump would win the election. Again, this is back in 16. Till gave one and a quarter million dollars to the Trump campaign, had an office in Trump Tower during the transition where he suggested candidates for jobs. Voting for Trump was like a not very articulate scream for help, Teal says in this piece. There are a lot of things I got wrong. It was crazier than I thought. It was more dangerous than I thought. They couldn't get the most basic pieces of the government to work. I think part of that was maybe worse than even my low expectations. So it's a long piece. I've just given you some of the highlights. And let's wrap up as we head into the weekend. And I hope you have a good one coming up. With number five. This is the story of a startup company which is being uh, working in a former horse stable in San Francisco. I didn't know there were horse stables in San Francisco. How ignorant of me. Anyway, it's called IPIN, as in AI PIN, as in artificial intelligence. And it's got this new gadget been working on with a lot of hype and partnerships with a lot of big tech companies. The idea is to get rid of smartphones. You don't need them anymore. Why? Because you have this pin. And the pin is being billed as like the first AI device. It can be controlled by speaking aloud, tapping a touchpad, or projecting a laser display onto the palm of a hand. All right, we're in serious sci-fi territory now, but this is not made up. The system relies on AI to help answer questions. What's the best way to load the dishwasher? Seriously, you can't figure that out on your own? <laughs> that is pathetic. And you can summarize incoming messages by just saying, catch me up. So this would be a step forward for Siri, for A-L-E-X-A, Google Assistant, it can follow a conversation from one question to the next without needing the context. So this is getting kind of weird. It's capable of editing a single word in a dictated message rather than requiring the user to correct an error by repeating the whole text from the beginning. I see a lot of people do that these days, you know, text so-and-so, and then they recite what they want to say. And sure, you won't have to do it twice if you can actually edit it. And it does this from a gadget that, wait for it, is reminiscent of the badges worn in Star Trek. This does sound like Star Trek. To tech insiders, it's a moonshot. To outsiders, it's a sci-fi fantasy. So the outfit or part of the outfit is called Humane. And they're going to pop this in the next few weeks. Expects to sell about 100,000 pins. They will cost $699 and require a $24 monthly subscription. All right, you might say $699, I mean, that's ridiculous. But if you didn't have to buy an iPhone or an Android phone and you could just have this pin and you could talk to this pin and project it on your palm, I don't know. I mean, certainly the early adopters will be all over this. Oh, but you got to learn a new operating system. Okay, I'm out. I'm having enough trouble with the current operating systems. 
Um, you got to get a new phone number for your device. Comes with its own wireless plan. Um, you can only take certain kind of photos. Um, now this was all. This is all the product of the original OpenAI and Sam Altman, its chief executive, telling the New York Times. He expected AI to be a huge part of how we interact with computers. Maybe you don't need the actual computers. Ah, however, the pin can sometimes be buggy, as it was during some of the company's demos for the New York Times. So it sounds like it's not there yet. I will probably wait until other people are using it and they work out the kinks. I, I, I don't know. I mean, remember when Google Glass was going to be the next big thing, and not so much. So some things, which sound great on paper, end up being tremendously popular, and other things are, are just a complete and total flop. That's what's interesting about Silicon Valley. I'd like to see this pin in action, but I, don't, I think I'll hold on to my $699. Hey, folks, have a great weekend. Media Buzz Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. I'll gather stuff over the weekend to share with you on Monday, and I will see you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.